So we continue to ask ourselves this question about how justification has, has come to us. And we, we need to stay, if, if we are asked what justification is, we need to know what it is. And this is not just a matter of uh, academics and, oh, we're going to, to class now and we, we need to learn some big theological terms because that's what we have to do if we're going to be really smart. No, no, that's not, that's not the question here. That's not what we're talking about. Paul uses these words and he expects believers to understand what they mean. And he's not talking about people with uh, academic degrees, that they're the ones who should understand these deep things of theology. Some of the deepest Christians that we know are people without academic degrees. In fact, some of the most confused people are sometimes the academics. Not always the case, but oftentimes they are the ones that don't understand the gospel and don't understand the truth and are always making everything so complex. And of course, we need to be very careful. That is not in any way a word against academia, against studying the word of God. And we need to deeply study the things of God, and it's good to understand these things. It's good to pursue degrees, but it's good to pursue them in a spirit of humility along with an attitude that submits to the truth of, of Scripture. But when Paul talks about justification, he is talking very simply about a legal declaration. It's God making a statement. That's what justification is. It is God declaring to us that we are righteous. So it is a legal term. It is it, we were as if we were in the courtroom and we stand before a judge and the judge declares us innocent or even further in the scripture he declares us actively righteous. So when we talk about justification, we are talking about a declaration of God, a legal declaration where he says over our life, he speaks over our life. He says, this person is righteous. This person is just. This person is perfect in my eyes. That's what he says. And so he has said it over every believer. And he doesn't say it again and again. This is a, a one-time statement that he makes about us. It's not an impartation of something within us. It's not him giving us something that is moving with inside of our souls. That's not what justification is. Justification, it's all over the scripture, is simply a legal declaration of God saying something, and it's saying this person is righteous an amazing thought. This is what uh, God says about us. He says that we are righteous, that we are perfect, that we are spotless. And the question is, how in the world can he say that? Because we recognize that we're still sinners. And the answer is, he says that we are righteous based upon the imputed or the credited righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, I see the righteousness of Christ. I see all of his perfections, I see his rightness, I see his goodness, and I'm going to credit that, or I'm going to give that to you. I'm going to declare that you have his righteousness. And so the question is, how do we get that? Because the only way to get into heaven is to be completely righteous, to be completely spotless. So how do we get the righteousness of Christ given to us or credited, uh, 
credited to us uh, on our account. How, how do we get that? And the scripture says it's by faith. It's through faith alone. And so if you want to be spotless, if you want to be seen as righteous in the sight of God, we come to an end of ourselves. And as we said earlier today, we yield. We say, Lord, I recognize I'm filthy. Lord, I recognize I'm a sinner, that I'm stained before you, and that I'm never going to be righteous in my life. I could try every day, all day long, for the rest of my life, and I'm never going to be righteous before you, and yet that's exactly what you demand. You command of me righteousness, but I'm never going to be. And when we realize that, and when that really comes to us, and we come to an end of ourselves, and we say to ourselves, I'm really never going to be righteous in and of myself. I'm never going to earn this thing. No matter how hard I work, and by the way, works, when people talk about working for God so they can prove themselves to God, they're not really working for God. You know, I'm going to try to be good enough for God. No, no, they're just, they're just working so that someday they can have an argument with God and try to prove uh, to God how good they are. That's all that's about. God, didn't you see my life? Didn't you see me? It's all about me. It's not about trying to please God. Good works are never about trying to please God. Because the sinner who's doing so-called good works doesn't care a lick about God. What they're trying to prepare for themselves is a defense on that last day. So they can say, God, I'm just like you. Isn't that the lie in the garden? You can become just like God. And that's what a lot of people are going to do on Judgment Day. That's what they're going to try to do. They're going to try to argue and have a dialogue with God. That's a very popular word these days, a dialogue with God. And so they're going to stand before God and they're going to say, well, if you looked at this and I'm, I'm right in this and I did this, and God's going to say, but you're, you're not righteous. And then they're going to say something like, but you're not fair. See, the argument begins. You're not fair. If you only saw this, or God, if you only understood this, then you would, you would declare me righteous. And there's a lot of people that think that in their back pocket they have this argument of self-righteousness, and it was never about trying to please God. The person who says, oh, yes, I'm just trying to work for God and I'm just trying to serve God and I'm trying to do it on my own. And by the way, there's a lot of people still out there like that. I go to church or uh, I've been a good person and we think, my goodness, what a nice person trying to please God. Listen, that person doesn't care a lick about God. Not a bit. Because the person that cares about God says this, whoa, am I undone? And yet we tend to buy this, this lie that says that people, people are decent and people are good. The Dalai Lama, he's a, he's a decent guy. He's just in a little bit of a different religion, of course, but he's a decent guy. All the Buddhists are decent people. They walk around with their hands like this. And Protestants who don't really know Jesus, but they're good people, if you only understood. Roman Catholics, they're trying their best before God. And we buy that. Listen, it's such a lie. It's a lie from the pit of hell. That's what it is, that people are really working to please God. Nobody cares about God. Nobody. That, that's Paul's point in, in Romans chapter 3, where he says this, there's none who seek God. 
Oh, if you only understood all the people out there that are just seeking God, seeking after God, God seekers. There's so many spiritual people just seeking after God. And we can hear Satan's voice on that day going, yeah, God, there was all these people. They were trying their best to seek you. Boy, are you mean. Boy, are you unfair that you won't let them in. And that's, that's the deceit of this whole thing is that it's for God when really it's an elevation of ourselves. It's really making ourselves an idol. It's really saying to ourselves, you know what? I can, I can be just like God. I can be just like him, just as righteous as he is. And it was this lie that was starting to infiltrate the church where people were going away from grace and saying, I am completely dependent upon the grace of God, completely dependent on his grace. He's the one, listen, he's the one who chose me from the foundation of the earth. He's the one who in time came and convicted me of sin. It wasn't me seeking him. This is, this is um, awe-inspiring. This is breathtaking to think about the fact that we would have all been, you would have been plunged into hell based upon your own desires and your own will if it were not for the sovereign grace of God that reached down into the darkness as all of us were fall, falling with his great love and great compassion, it had literally zero to do, not even 1%, not 3%, not 5%. It had nothing to do with our seeking. It had nothing to do with our, our deeds. And this is what Paul is getting at, and this is the question that he was asking as we talked about it last week, is he's saying, what happened? How, how could you buy that all of salvation is all by the grace of God? It's a complete work of God. And all of a sudden, teachers infiltrate the church and they say, well, it's also you. It's, uh, it's this co-labor of you and God that you have to do it and God has to do it. You both throw something into the pot and out comes salvation. And Paul is asking what happened? How could you have fallen? How could you have fallen into this trap? And then he begins to ask us a question. He asks us, how, how did you get the Spirit? How did you receive the Holy Spirit? Why don't you look with me here at um, Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. He says this in verse 2. He says, um, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, he's saying to you, how, how did you get the Holy Spirit? And by the way, the Holy Spirit is the one who proves to us. He is the one who shows us that we have been saved. We are being saved, and he's the guarantee that we will be saved. We had, we had nothing, nothing to the Spirit's work of salvation. And he's asking, did you do something? Did God say, look at that person's life down there. My goodness, they're relatively faithful. I think I should gift them with the gift of salvation. That's what he's asking. Did you do something? Uh, did you... Did you obey enough? Did you do enough good deeds? What was it in your life that finally allowed God to say, you know what, I, I think that I will give that person the Holy Spirit. They've finally climbed the ladder. 
Listen, the only way you're ever going to receive the Spirit is not by trying to climb the ladder of good works, but it's by recognizing it was a complete gift while we were yet sinners. And so here we are in the midst of our filth, in the midst of our sin, this idea of I've got to clean myself up to come to God. And there's lots of people who think that. I've got to get myself ready so that he'll accept me. So I've got to scrub off some of this dirt. I've got to take a spiritual bath. If I go into the church and there's people who think like this, if God only knew, and of course he knows, but even if other people knew, if, if people knew in the church the things that I have done, oh my goodness, lightning would strike. Lightning would come down because of my bad deeds. So I don't dare want to walk into that building because of lightning and thunder is going to come down. Uh, on me, so I've got to get myself. I've got to get myself ready. I've got to get myself cleaned up for the spirit. So I come before the Lord and I say, "Look, I'm pretty, pretty okay now. I've been trying this last week." And He finally goes, "You've been, you've been doing a good enough job. I'm finally going to give you my spirit." I had the chance this past week to share at district conference in front of all these pastors. Some of the things that had been going on in our life in the past year and a half or so. I was called up and one of the officials at the office said, would you be willing to share? We had been talking about this in the past and he said, would you be willing to share? N nothing too detailed, of course, but enough to give a sense of the urgency of the situation. And as I stood up and he called me up in front of all these pastors and delegates in the district, he began to ask me about my life, and then he got to our marriage, and he got to our family, he got to all these different things, and I began to, to share about what has been going on. You could hear a pin drop in that place. And you could sense the, the power of God. It was amazing afterwards, pastors coming up to me going, you know what, did you hear my story? I was talking to um, my father recently, and he said he was talking about C.S. Lewis, and he said that C.S. Lewis says the, the ultimate definition of friendship is you too. When somebody says you too, you've been through that too. Oh, I know. I've got stories to tell you too. And all of a sudden, the facade of everything being great and everything being wonderful and everything being perfect is blown to bits. And hearts unite over you too. You mean you you know what that's like? I know what that's like. And uh, Paul Paul is saying, listen, you can't clean yourself up. How did you get the Spirit? That's what he's asking. How how did you get the how did you get the Holy Spirit? Did he come because of something that you did, or did he come in spite of all that you've done? And overwhelm you with conviction and love and show you that God still loves you. and God still wants you to come to him in spite of everything. It was, a, it was a miracle, he says, of hearing. Somebody's listening and they're going, I'm listening, I'm listening. He's saying this miracle happened. How did it happen? Did it happen through the deeds that we have done? Or did it happen through the hearing with faith? So the Spirit of God comes and he begins to open somebody's ears. This is all the Spirit's work. If you remember, Jesus said in John chapter 3, he said, you must be born again. A man must be born again. You want to see the kingdom of God? 
You want to see the kingdom of heaven? You must be born again. How does a man get born again? What does he do to get born of the Spirit? Well, the question is, what did you do to get born the first time? Nothing. What do you do to get born of the Spirit? Is this a decision that we make? All of a sudden we sit around and say, finally I'm coming to this decision. Or is this the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit as he begins to open our ears and give us hearing, listen, hearing, as Paul says, hearing with faith. This is why you can be preaching to a crowd of people and one person is sitting there going, I can't stand this, can't wait to get out the doors, I'm so done with this. And another person's sitting there and they're listening and they're listening and their heart is being opened and they're being moved and they're being convicted and they're, they have a sense of God's love and a sense of God's powers in their heart and powers in the room. And the other person isn't experiencing anything. Why? Why is that? It's because of the move of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit. He works as he wills. He, he distributes gifts within the church as he wills. But even before that, he sovereignly moves upon those whom he wills. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus taught in John 3. Why don't you flip with me there real quick. John chapter, John chapter 3. John chapter 3. It's just, we won't read the whole narrative here, but it says in verse 8, the wind blows where, where it wishes. Who is Jesus like, likening the wind to? He's likening the wind uh, to the sovereign move of, of the Holy Spirit. He's saying the wind goes where it wishes. Guess who goes where he wishes? And he's a he. He's not an it. He's the Holy Spirit. He goes where he wishes. And you hear it sound, so you hear the wind, but the wind is going wherever it is directed, of course, by the Lord, but it's going wherever it wishes. We have no power over that. That's the point of Christ. But you do not know where it comes from. Where does the wind come from, Jesus is asking? Or from where does it, it go? Then he says, unless we miss the point, he, he says here, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Oh, the Spirit moves, and this is what Paul is saying here in Galatians chapter 3. It's the move of the Holy Spirit. You can't keep somebody away from salvation if they're being moved by the Holy Spirit. As Lydia in the book of Acts, it says that her, her heart was opened up, her heart was opened to receive the things that were being spoken by Paul. So a person's heart is opened, and as their heart is opened, and as their heart is being regenerated and it's being made new and alive in Christ for the first time. You know what the first cry of a baby Christian is? It's faith. Faith. So a, a person's heart is being opened up to the Lord as they're hearing the things of the gospel, as they're hearing the things of truth. They're being moved by that. They're being convicted by that. And the Spirit of God brings them to a place of where they say, Yes, Lord, as we sang earlier, I yield to you. And that's the making of a Christian. And Paul is asking, did all that happen? Did that hearing that came by the Spirit, uh, did, that, did that simply come? Did you get that because of something that you did? Or did it come because of the Spirit's power? And by the way, there has been oftentimes a, a woeful lack of, of emphasis on the Spirit when we're talking about the Holy Spirit 
when it comes to the preaching of the gospel. It's amazing. We've had uh, different gospel coalitions, gospel groups. People talk about the gospel. You can know the gospel. That is what Christ has done for us to save his people through his life and death. And there's discussions about this. I have been amazed at how oftentimes we will talk about the gospel without talking about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit coming and changing us. We can sit around, listen, somebody can know the gospel. They can say, I understand what a false gospel is, and I know what the true gospel is, and yet they could define it, they can describe it in detail, and yet be dead as a doornail spiritually. And this is why Paul comes. He says, you can theologically describe, yes, I know it's by the life of Christ and what he's done on my behalf and his death and resurrection, and I can fill in all the blanks and describe everything in detail. But his question is this, where's the Spirit? Has the Spirit of God opened up your heart to really believe that? Or do you just believe it up here? Lots of people know. Christ died for me. We could probably go downstairs and talk to kids and thank God they know the gospel. It's good to know the gospel. It's through the hearing of the gospel that we become saved. But it's got to go a lot deeper than that. It's not just the hearing of the gospel. This is why Paul told the church in Thessalonica, my preaching came to you not only in word, but in power and with full conviction. So it's the, the power of the Spirit that moves us. And Paul is saying to us, uh, that didn't come by anything that, we, anything that we did. This lack of emphasis on the Spirit. When we get the Spirit, He's the one. He's the one who assures us. He's the one who enables us to know we are the children of God. We get this at the moment of salvation. We get the whole Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not a second blessing. Not a second work of grace. We get all of who he is at the moment we believe. In fact, that's what Acts chapter 2 says. If you go to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, verse um, 38, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, verse 38 says this, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. He's talking here about salvation. And he says this, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's not saying you're going to receive a gift from the Holy Spirit, a second work. That's not what he's saying. He's saying here you're going to actually receive him. He is the gift. Guess who the gift is? The gift is the Holy Spirit. As you hear about this and as you repent and believe the Holy Spirit has come to you, you actually receive him in all of who he is. You can't receive part of the Holy Spirit, get 10% here, 50% here, 20% later on, anything like that. No, no. He says you get him. He is the gift. What is the gift here? The gift is God himself. The gift is the third person of the Trinity. The gift is the Holy Spirit. How often we miss this. So Paul is saying, did you get the Holy Spirit? How did you get the Holy Spirit when he came, this this one who promises and guarantees that we are currently saved. Did you get that through what you did, or did you get that through hearing with, with faith? Look at 1 John chapter 4. 1 John, the fourth uh, chapter.
1 John chapter 4, verse 13 says this. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. How do we know? How do you know that you abide in him? Is it because you know the gospel well? Is that, is, that, is, that, is that the answer here? Is it because we are able to articulate the gospel? How do you know you abide in him? Let me just stop here and ask you a question. Are you able to say that? Are you able to say, I know I abide in God. And I know God abides in me. I'm not just, I'm not guessing about this. I'm not hoping about this. If I was to sit down and talk with you and, and say, do you, do you know God? Do you, do you have real fellowship with him? Do you know that he is in you and you are in him? That the Holy Spirit has really come to dwell with inside of you? And sometimes people begin to kind of think to themselves and go, well, I, 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 hope, I hope I do. I think I might. God is saying he wants to take us beyond that place to genuine salvation where you say, oh, yeah, I'm sure I've struggled with doubts in my life and failures and tests, but I know that I know that I'm his. And uh, I know that I'm, I'm his and that he is mine and that he has come to live with inside of me. How do you have that kind of knowledge? And here's the danger. The danger is saying, well, I know the gospel. Well, that's all great that you know the gospel, but how do you know that you are his? How do you know you're saved? And it's not by being able to fill out doctrinal documents. It's by the power of the Spirit, and that's what he says here. How, how do you know that you are his? He says this, because he has given us of his Spirit. And that's what Paul is referring to when he tells us that we have received the Spirit not by the things that we do, but by hearing with faith. The Holy Spirit is, is the proof of salvation. He's the proof. And he's the guarantee of all that is to come. He's the proof not only that you are saved now, that you will be saved in the future. It's guaranteed. Listen, your eternal outcome, if you are genuinely saved, is guaranteed the moment you receive the Holy Spirit. It's guaranteed. You say, well, wait a second. What if, what if things happen in my life? What if I sin real bad in, in my life? What if I, what if I do things as, as a believer that are are not of the Lord. Maybe, maybe there's a possibility that he'll come and he'll take that away. No, no, not if you're genuinely saved. You say, well, what about all the people that seem to fall away? Well, a, a lot of them were never saved in the first place. Say, people that said a prayer and that lived a life that looked, at least from outward appearances, a person goes, I, I believe that that person is a Christian. They would even talk like that. And then all of a sudden they fall away. Well, it could be they're going through a time of rebellion in their life. It, it could be that they never really understood the gospel in the first place. And this is why it's so key that we understand the spiritual person is not the person who can dance all around the sanctuary. I'm, we're all for dancing here. And it's not the person who can raise their hands the highest or talk in the most spiritual lingo. 
And sometimes you talk to Christians and you want to talk about the Lord. That should be the thing that we love talking about is Jesus and the things of God. But sometimes you talk with Christians and it's all this pie-in-the-sky, high-fluent uh, uh, spiritual jargon. And it's like, man, come on back down to reality. Praise God, bless God, brother, amen, hallelujah, brother. You know, it's like, whoa, whoa. How you doing? How's life? Take a breath. And so we we often we often miss this. And and I would just say another thing in passing. That the person who knows the Lord and who has the Holy Spirit obeys his commandments. That's what 1 John says. Now Spurgeon said that the person who says, I love the Lord, I know the Lord, and is living in a lifestyle of uh, blatant sin, and he says, and has, has no desire, uh, no intention of repenting of that lifestyle, is just continuing on. Listen, that person is not saved. So it's not just a matter of going through this and being able to talk spiritual talk, and, and, and all these kind of things. And that's why it's not just a doctrinal test, but Paul continues to come back over and over again in his teaching and in his preaching to do you have the Spirit? Do you have Him? Have you been convicted? Can you tell me about your life with Jesus? Let me, let me say it like this. Can you say, I really love Him? I love Him. And I love him so much that I am endeavoring by his power to live a life that would please him. He's my all-consuming fire. That's the question. He's my, he's my one burning desire. It's Jesus. And if a person talks like that, though they may fail and they will, there's a desire, there's a struggle, there's a holy struggle there to follow the Lord. But, but make no mistake, the Holy Spirit, is the guarantee of a full salvation. Look at uh, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. It says that this, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, there it is again, the hearing, the hearing of the word, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Here it is. Here's the Spirit. Paul talking about the Spirit again. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee. Uh, what, what's that mean? It means you are saved and you are guaranteed to be saved. It's, it's a, a fixed thing. It's guaranteed. It's set in stone who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So it's not just a salvation for a moment, but it's a, a guarantee of future inheritance in Christ until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. It's a full salvation. It's a salvation for now, and it's a salvation that's guaranteed for eternity. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you go back there, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse Says this, I will destroy the, the wisdom of the wise and the discerning of heart. That's back in verse 19. 
who is the wise, where is the scribe? And then he goes up and he talks about Christ being preached. Then he goes into the calling in verse 26. And then in verse 29, so that no one may boast except boast in the Lord. This salvation is a full salvation. It is a salvation that is complete. Now, he asks this question here. So he tells us, how did you receive the Holy Spirit? Did you receive it by works or did you receive it by faith? Then he goes back to this whole idea of foolishness. If you go back to Galatians chapter 3, he says, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, so you started with the Holy Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Now, some people would say here he's talking about sanctification, that uh, they're saying, okay, we've been justified, but we're going to be sanctified somehow in our own strength and in our own power. I don't think that's what he's talking about here. I think he's actually talking still about justification. He's saying, were you justified initially? Were you saved initially? Did God declare that over you initially, and yet somehow you have to add your own effort and your own works in order to keep being justified, to be perfected. In fact, the word perfected here means to be completed or accomplished. So did God start it off for you? Did he declare that you're going to be justified, legally righteous in his sight, but somehow you've got to continue that on? And there are some people who think like this, okay? God has justified me. He has declared me righteous in his sight. I am uh, pure and holy because of him. But somehow I need to maintain that. So justification is a, is a legal declaration. They would say that's true. But then they would say, but you got to struggle real hard after you are saved in order to keep on being saved, in order to finish your salvation. So you get started in salvation and then you've got to kind of walk that thing out. And if you're not walking it out properly, God could come down with that lightning bolt and say, you know what, I'm going to remove my justification from you. And there's people who live in fear like that. They think, okay, God has justified me, but somehow I have to hang on to this. And they think, uh-oh, if I do this sin or if I've done that sin, then somehow he's going to take it away from me. People are, people are afraid of that, coming to a point where they think that God is going to say, you know what? I declared you justified at one point, but you've got to carry this out yourself in works. So I'm going to uh, take a test for you, but then you've got to complete the course yourself. Is, is that what salvation is? That's what Paul is asking. Let me, let me just say it this way. Do we trust in Christ for taking the entrance exam, but then we rest on our own study of the tests after that, in the finals, in order to complete the course? That's the question. So God says we, we trust in him, we trust in his test-taking for us, but then after that, do we, do we revert back to works? And that's what he's saying. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now going to have your salvation completed by the flesh? And a brother who's studying right now, for law, and he had to take this huge entrance exam, and he studied for it for a long time. And he did well, and it'd be like if we said, okay, we're going to use his entrance exam in order to get into law school. If that was the case, if we were able to use his scores and his test was credited to us, that'd be good news. We'd all get into law school. 
But then the question is, are we on our own after that? And that's what's the, the question is here about salvation. Does Christ take our entrance exam for us? But after that, we've got to study on our own. We've got to take the test and we've got to take the final. And as long as we add to it, then we're going to be okay. And Paul is saying, listen, you don't add a bit to your salvation. Christ didn't just take the entrance exam for you, but he gave you a salvation that is from beginning to end. That's why we talked about the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's keep going. Verse um, 5, verse 4. He says this, did you suffer so many things in vain, if it indeed was in vain? I'm saying all the things you've suffered as a Christian, are you willing to give up on that now? Think about that for a second. Think about all the things you've been through. All the sufferings through faith in Christ. You want to turn your back on that at this point and start over again? Can you imagine walking with the Lord for 10 or 20 years and then saying, yeah, it was great with Jesus, and I sure suffered with him for a number of things, went through a bunch of, of stuff with Christ, but now it's gotten to the point where I think I'll just handle this on my own. I think I'm going to take a different route. Paul's saying, do you, do you want to end your Christian walk that way? Do you want to just give up at this point? Think of all the things that you have suffered. Then he says this, and we close with this in verse 5. He says, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law. How about all the miracles that have taken place in your midst? Did that come because of things that you did, that you performed well enough that finally God said, I'll do some miracles? Or did the miracles come in your midst simply by the Spirit's power through faith? In fact, that's what he says, or by hearing with faith. Think about this for a second. Salvation is of the Lord, Jonah 2.9, from beginning to end. We don't add anything to it. Our sufferings, and they are many as a believer, are a result of faith alone. But do we suffer all those things in vain? Are we willing to just turn our back on them? Think about this, the salvation from the Lord. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29 says, It was not only given to you to believe, on him, but also to suffer for him. And then, of course, miracles. How many miracles has he done in our life? You say, well, I never saw a limb grow out. But what about other miracles? How about the miracle number one of your salvation? How about the miracle of the way that he puts food on the table every week? How about the miracle of him protecting our relationship with him so that it never fails? And th this is why we don't add anything to it. Listen, you could sin all day tomorrow, and God forbid, but grace would still be intact. Think how many sins you're going to commit after today. You say, well, that's audacious. Are you saying we can just go out and sin? And grace may abound all the more, may it never be. But the truth is we're going to, and we need a grace that is greater than all of our sin. Paul is saying this in conclusion. He's saying if all of this has happened by the Spirit through hearing with faith, why are you turning back to the law? If your salvation is complete, the Holy Spirit has been given to you simply by hearing with faith. If your sufferings have been given to you, through the Spirit and in relationship with Christ, 
If all of these miracles that have happened to you and within the church have happened simply uh, through faith by the Spirit's power, then why would we want to turn back to all that drudgery, all that working, all that trying to please God, which, as we said, is not really trying to please God when we're doing it in the flesh anyway. He's saying, continue on, press on in the gospel that you've been given, the free gospel of salvation, the complete gospel. You know who you know, you know Christ, and you know him because of the Holy Spirit who has been given to you as a guarantee, not of just your salvation today and this week, but a guarantee of salvation forever. And that's a good promise, isn't it? Praise the Lord. Would you stand with me as we as we close? Father, we thank you for this salvation that is, is complete. It's not partial. I pray that the Spirit of God would speak to our hearts and convince us through the text of Scripture what is true. Lord, I pray that you would break down even any traditional thinking in our minds that is not from the Scripture but is man-made. That we would go over and over again to what does the Bible say? What does Jesus say through his apostles as we read it here in the Scriptures? And God, I pray that we wouldn't be turning to our own efforts, but that today we would just think about the fact that this grace that we have been given, the salvation, it's full and it's completely free. And it's really all of your work. Thank you for that. Lord, I pray that you would enable us, God, to rely on grace, and I pray that that grace would continue to produce in us a holiness that does please the Lord. But not so that we can be justified, but so that we can say that we're doing this out of love, out of worship of what you've made us to be. You're a good Father, and we thank you for who you are. And we come to you again in the mighty name of Jesus and by his grace alone. We say these things with a hearty amen. Amen.